Jake, my boyfriend. It's snowing. Winter is coming. We have a real connection, a rare and intense attachment. I've never experienced anything like it. I'm thinking of ending things. Huh? What? Did you say something? I don't think so. Weird. Welcome back, Oscar fans. Hope everybody enjoyed the Labor Day weekend. This is Jake. You're listening to the OCC, and today we're talking about a movie that certainly looked like it was going to be an Oscar contender when we saw it on the schedule. We'll talk a little bit about uh, whether whether we still think it fits in after having seen it, but that movie is, I'm thinking of ending things, the new Charlie Kaufman film on Netflix. And joining me to break it down is a filmmaker who has his own new movie in theaters, Adam Lippi. Thanks for coming back on the show. Thanks very much, Jake. So you were on the show uh, a little bit earlier this year and, and discussed your film, Wait, Wait, Don't Kill Me, a little bit, but would you just refresh the audience on on the overall premise of, of your movie? Sure. It is a, uh, it's a horror comedy. It takes place in inner city Philadelphia where a virus gets loose and um, it causes massive dehydration and um, people start attacking each other because it takes place on the hottest day of the year and people are mostly water. And one of the attacks is caught on a viral video, and the military um, tries to stop everything as quickly as they can and slow everything down. And they realize they can't do it, so they fence off the inner city and let everybody die. And it's about the people who are left there to die, which sounds like the grimmest possible movie, but it's actually more of a comedy than anything else. Sounds oddly and and horrifyingly familiar. I'm sure to many listeners at the moment. Yeah, the more the movie the the movie has become unfortunately uh, fairly realistic. Um, when it was never intended to be completely realistic. And this movie you can watch online uh, currently through Saturday, September 19th. That's via the Colonial Theater in, in Phoenixville, Pennsylvania. Is that the best way uh, to direct people to, to seek yeah, this out? You go, you go to the Colonial website, the Colonial Theater's website, colonialtheater.com, and look up Wait, Wait, Don't Kill Me. It's under uh, virtual streaming. And then you can watch it at home. Um, they'll have you you know sign up for an account, but you don't have to pay anything more than the cost of the ticket. Um, and... Uh, you know, watch it. I think you get two days uh, after you buy the ticket to, to watch the film. Well, today uh, we're going to be talking about Charlie Kaufman. He's obviously somebody who has had Oscar nominated films, both in the live action arena and in animation uh, with, with Animal Lisa. Your film also has a mix of live action and animation, which I thought was really interesting. And the animation sort of depicts the virus and, and how it works. What what made you decide to go in that direction? And can you just talk about that process? Sure. So the idea was uh, when you make a movie with a so, sort of a sci-fi premise, and there's like a fictional disease in this that's a, basically based on viral meningitis. And the idea uh, when you do this is you could have, it would be very easy to simply uh, just have two doctors dryly explaining, you know, how things work and how you know, the disease functions and how people are going to react to it. Um, so the idea was, how do we deal with that exposition without slowing the movie down completely? And uh, so I created scenes that do have exposition, which is normally the death knell for a movie like this, where the movie that would just have to stop so everyone explains the backstory and everything, how everything works. And rather than do that, I just decided to go with a goofy exposition, have scenes instead of where people are... Um, just standing there talking, you know, turn them into comedy scenes uh, because that way you kind of sneak in all the information without 
boring the audience and stopping the movie dead. So the conception was there from the original script where I just wrote this very lengthy scene and I didn't know if it would ever get done, but Ellen Marcus did the animation. She did and actually did two scenes, two scenes of animation. Uh, the second scene was never intended to be animated, but she just said, hey, um, you know, you I couldn't fill this, pl this plot point. Uh, this, there was sort of a hole in the film between one scene and another. I needed sort of a transitional scene. And she said, I could just animate that and you know so she said i'll just rotoscope it and so i gave her some footage and she rotoscoped all the characters um but they both sort of function as exposition and one of them is a dream sequence and just like um you know seeing like any dream sequence or like a newspaper report that anyone's reading or a radio report or or um voiceover it's all just exposition it's all just basically telling you things that i couldn't tell visually it's all sort of cheating in its own way and so this was a way of getting around the problem of how much exposition am I going to need to have if I've made up a fictional disease? Well, kind of sticking with the theme of, of Charlie Kaufman, he's obviously also a filmmaker who's had multiple prominent works about the process of filmmaking in various aspects. So adaptation, obviously, was was all about screenwriting. Your movie is feels very much for this time, but it was obviously conceived and, and written before I'm sure you had ever heard the word coronavirus or COVID-19. So it was written in 2013 and 2014, um, and then we shot in 2015 and 2017, and then post-production took like about, about two years. It was initially conceived basically because I was talking to someone and they said, hey, uh, I want to make a zombie movie. And I said, why would you do that? I mean, everyone makes zombie movies. You can make a virus movie and make up your own rules. You don't have to follow along with that sort of either slow slow zombie or fast movie or fast zombie or eating brains or any of that stuff. You can make up however you want to do it, and then you can play around with all sorts of stuff. So I, I conceived of it years and years before, and then the initial drafts of the script were much bigger and much more sort of action horror-oriented. Um, and then it was when I didn't think I was actually going to be directing the movie. So uh, I just went very, very big. It had like, you know, 70 locations, like 100 speaking parts, something absurd. And it ran, I think, 142 pages, which uh, is basically a page a minute. And you can't you can't have a two and a half hour movie that's for this kind of thing. It's kind of absurd. So, um, you know, I kept paring down the drafts once I realized that I was the only one who's going to make the movie. And uh, by the shooting draft, it was down to 99 pages. And it retained most of the things that were in the original draft, minus some of the bigger action sequences. And you'd start to, you know, you when you when you go from you know five drafts later and you cut out forty five pages, you start to combine characters. You take out things that just will be expensive, but most of it was honestly retained. The tone is pretty much the same, and a lot of the dialogue is almost the same too. Um, so I, I had conceived of it in in this particular way before and it just happened to sort of unfortunately coincide with the actual thing happening in real life you know being john malkovich another one of kaufman's uh oscar films is not about filmmaking per se but obviously john malkovich is an actor and and the main character in that movie is a puppeteer so just kind of thinking about the relationship with your actors and and then sort of pulling the strings as director how did your script or did it evolve at all as you were actually shooting it and what kind of input did you have with with the team that was kind of acting and, and behind the scenes there were only a few changes from the script to the actual film when you if you read the shooting draft it's pretty close to to what's in the movie you cut certain things for time or because um you know things are still a little slow and it's hurting the pacing 
uh, it takes place in uh, Nice Town, and it was shot in Germantown. Nice Town is a real place uh, near Germantown, and because uh, nobody writes parts for Hispanic men in their 40s and black women in their late 30s, those actors don't really exist. So I had to go to New York to cast it, and um, and then I wanted to shoot in New York, but couldn't um, raise enough money because the locations were so expensive. So then I just hired all the actors in New York, and then. Um, shot the movie in Philadelphia and bust them back and forth with air, you know, and then put them up in Airbnbs if we had consecutive shooting days with the same actors. It was the only way to financially do it, and their input was was valued, but it, but it, there wasn't needed to be a big change because you know I would, you know, sense who they were and they'd already auditioned with the scenes that almost ended up in the film completely verbatim, so I knew they could do it. There were there didn't need to be a lot of changes. I'm not very strict on set. I basically say things like. As long as you get the plot point out or the joke out that I need, that's all that's important. If it's difficult for you to say, well, I'll rewrite it or you refine it, and uh, we'll go with that. I'm, I'm not someone who's strict, and we often, unless there was a technical problem, we never did more than four takes. Um, it just, you know, you don't want to wear anybody out, and, and some of the scenes are very complex in terms of how people are talking anyway. So um, I just, you know, let the actors, you know, breathe in, you know, breathe into the dialogue. And since we did rehearsal, which I find to be the most important thing you can do with actors, not just for blocking reasons, but also just, just, uh, it'll help you, uh, cut down drafts or refine some dialogue. If you do a rehearsal, what you'll find is you'll hear them say it out loud as if they're performing it and you'll go, Oh, right. That's a bit too wordy or that joke's not working. It worked on the page, but it doesn't work said out loud. So then you change it based on their performances. So you already know what they're going to do. And you don't have to make too many modifications. Very cool. Well, I, the movie is Wait, Wait, Don't Kill Me. We'll circle back to it at the end and, and make sure that everybody can find it. Want to switch gears now and talk Charlie Kaufman, and I'm thinking of ending things. So this movie just came out on Netflix. How familiar were you, I guess, before you turned on the movie with the content of, and plot of, of the movie? I didn't know anything about the plot. Um, I was very familiar with Charlie Kaufman. He was a big influence on me. Uh, which if you saw Wait, Wait, Don't Kill Me would not remotely be evident. But there's something he did in adaptation that I've always wanted to emulate, but I did not have the cojones to ever do it. Um, there's a scene in adaptation near the end of the film, I'm going to slightly spoil it, but not really, where uh, Nicholas Cage as both Charlie and Donald Kaufman um, are hiding out because um, they think they're going to be killed. And um, they have this quiet moment where they're hiding sort of in a bog. And uh, Donald, who is the less bright one, is talking to Charlie, and Do and Donald is telling a story about how he, you know, was in love with some girl, and you know, um, you know, and how how charmed he was by her, and and then and you know, Charlie Kaufman says, but but she made fun of you, and he, and he says, and Donald says, well, but I don't care, you know, that was my love, that was for me, and when you watch the movie, and I saw it when it came out, and I've seen it many times since. What's striking about that scene is it's very sincere, but the whole third act of adaptation is parody. And it's a sort of satire on ridiculous Hollywood films that turn sincere movies into pointless thrillers. And so in the midst of this parody of a pointless thriller, he has a completely sincere scene that's utterly moving. And I've always been confounded by how someone can do that, how you can have something in the midst of a parody and then put a sincere scene and it works. And I don't know how you do that. And I was always like, okay, I'm going to try. And I couldn't. I, I could never find. I tried to put something like that. Wait, wait, don't kill me. In the midst of something absurd that you would then 
have something sincere and and I just never I, I never found that that I could get away with it it just it just never worked and so he I was very familiar with his work and I was always so impressed I mean adaptation to me is one of the great screenplays and um, the way that it was brought off is, is almost as good as as the intention of, of, of the script itself um, but no I, I didn't know anything about um, the new Kaufman film and I, I I like to keep it that way if possible uh, I used to be a film critic and it, it was always better you you learn to know absolutely nothing about the movie so it all be surprises yeah that's how I like to experience films too I'll say too because you you said something that I think was pretty apropos for this conversation where you said about adaptation that you were going to spoil it a little but not really I think that's probably how I would describe the conversation we're about to have I think our, our goal is going to be to avoid really giving away kind of the major thing that would quote unquote spoil this movie but to Adam's point I, I think this is a movie that is best experienced without any context so my strong recommendation would be that if you haven't seen it watch it and then come back to this conversation but having said that through your first watch, when you turned off the TV, did you feel like you could have explained to anybody kind of the premise of the movie and what happened in the movie? I mean, yeah, I could have. Um, I, I wouldn't say that describing it to anybody, they would go, oh, yeah, I want to go see that. Um, but I find that the movies that he directed versus the ones that he wrote are much more difficult. And the filmmakers that adapted his scripts, whether it be George Clooney or um, Spike Jones or uh, Michelle Gondry, uh, soften the material a little bit. I mean, there's a there's a uh, in uh, Confessions of a Dangerous Mind, it, you know, Kaufman fought with Clooney about the way that the script was adapted, and um, basically Clooney made a point that there was much more in the original script, more uh, masturbatory material. Um, <laughs> And considering Kaufman's flights of fancy, you think, oh, well, it's because it went off in, you know, bizarro directions, but also because of what often occurs in his films, uh, I think it's meant literally. Um, there's plenty of <laughs> masturbation in several of his films. And uh, uh, I, I think that because there, there's a tendency to want to tamp down, not necessarily tamp down, but, you know, get out of the way of the screenplay, but soften it a bit. Watching the his 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 three films, Anomalisa, uh, Sinidoshi, New York, and I'm thinking of ending things. They're they're unpleasant while you're watching it, and they're and they all follow the same pattern as all Kaufman scripts, in which mostly for about the first 20 25 minutes, it's fairly mundane, and that's deliberate. And then maybe there'll be like one element that's slightly off, and 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 then there'll be a big twist where where the the surreal stuff or the meta stuff will kick in, and he still does that with the new film. Um, but yeah, I still found the same thing where you hope that it kind of grows on you after a couple of days. Because at the time, no, I couldn't explain it to anybody and nor could I sell it to them. And, and nor could I say to myself like, oh, yeah, I had a good time because that would be an inaccurate statement because I didn't. That's interesting. So for for me and, and so I watched this with my wife and this is not her kind of movie, I would say. But both of us were relatively intrigued like throughout the course of the movie i mean i i also come into the movie loving charlie kaufman and so you always sort of have a benefit of the doubt for a filmmaker that you like like you kind of i i guess i trust the product that charlie kaufman puts out into the world and so well no let me let me just say that no other filmmaker could get away with with <laughs> no with with any of this stuff because it's so deliberately off-putting um 
it's so alienating on purpose. And I like people just sitting around talking, rambling. And that's pretty much most of the movie, um, sitting in a car, rambling. And there is a purpose to it, but it, it can get very droning. It can get, it's absolutely alienating. Um, so it is, I, I think someone else could never, I, I don't think Richard Linklater, despite the fact that he has tons of movies where people just sit around and talk, could get away with something that's alienating with just people talking the whole time. Yeah, no, I mean, Kaufman is definitely seen as somebody who does things differently, but has a plan about it. And so I think that that, that credibility had me sticking with it throughout. And I think that even, I guess, you know, my wife doesn't really probably have context on, on Charlie Kaufman and who he is and what his movies are like, but she was also kind of waiting for the twist or waiting for it to all come together. And so I, I didn't experience it as kind of unpleasant. Like I was very intrigued throughout, but when it finished, I could not tell you what it all meant. I like I, without, without the, reference point of the internet and you know as somebody who had not read the source material i i didn't know i you know i just i didn't know i didn't get it and so once you know i went off and i was kind of compelled to read about it and to read takes and once i understood from kind of my external materials what had happened i actually thought it was pretty fascinating um but i i kind of wonder and the reason I kind of opened up by asking is I just I wonder how many people who haven't watched who aren't familiar with what the story is really can figure it out. It, it's so concealed and hidden, I feel like. Well, it's also very uh, it hedges its best by hedges its bets by being jokey. Um, there's a gag in the middle of the film that's very, very funny where you're watching somebody in a movie at a restaurant in a hokey love scene. And then they cut to a credit. And it's probably the funniest thing in the whole movie. And I think you probably know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Um, but when you break the fourth wall, like they do there, you kind of hurt the tension in a movie. Um, and Kaufman gets away with it sometimes. He never breaks the fourth wall, but it'll get pretty meta at times. And, you know, it, you, as with any Kaufman movie, you kind of wait for it to, for the thing to fold in on itself. And... I think that that joke does undermine how seriously we should take it because that's a it's a it's a good joke, but it actually is utterly irrelevant in the scheme of things. Um, and then when when the film takes on more flights of fancy, you you go with it, but you just you're just it's it's basically uh, essentially like like a, a someone who's famous doing stand-up for the first time the audience recognizes that person to give them five minutes leeway before they go all right that's enough this person it's not working and so with him you give yourself maybe 45 minutes where you go okay is this working and you know i don't mind any of this stuff i don't mind being alienated but i can't imagine that most people will will have the patience for it and i and i understand it i mean the whole thing is so deliberately claustrophobic um he he made a choice to shoot in the aspect ratio of one three three which is like what you would do for television and what you would do for like movies made in the thirties, forties and fifties, even though um, when he did Anomalisa, which is animation, he did two, three, five, which he also did for Sin and in New York, where, you know, to fill up the frame to make it seem more cinematic. This is deliberately tamped down and kind of like squeezes the life out of the, you know, the framing is deliberate. Um, and there's so many scenes that have this claustrophobia to them and have this endless anxiety that doesn't necessarily go anywhere. Like when, like the, it's about this couple that goes 
to um, visit um, the boyfriend's uh, family. And the scenes take on, uh, you know, the the tone of something like Mother, the Aronofsky movie, or what I kept thinking of is um, uh, Buffalo 66, where they go to visit the parents' house. It's a, those are very similar scenes in which people are, Ben Gazzara and Angelica Houston are kind of screaming at each other. And, you know, the, the framing kind of gets surreal and we kind of lose track of where we are in a very similar way that this does. But I, I can't imagine that someone coming in cold or not having any affinity for Kaufman is going to put up with this for very long. The interesting thing about that, and I, and I don't know how interested you, you are in sort of like the the zoomed out industry reads on this stuff. It kind of does interest me. I, I, I work, you know, my, my everyday job is business and I just sort of, I do get interested in that in like the delivery method. And this is obviously, this is put out as a Netflix movie. So this is on the front page of Netflix. It's not, you know, I didn't have to search for it. You open the app and it's the first thing. And I would love to see, I mean, they'll never release this, but I would love to understand the completion rate on it because I think it could get a lot of clicks from people who maybe don't know what they're in for. The trailer is fairly kind of, I don't think you would expect from the trailer that it's as off the off the rails as it is. And I feel like this would lose a lot of just very mainstream people. It just feels so different from the experience of what people would typically expect out of a movie. I could be wrong about that, though, because, I mean, it is, it's certainly... It's unique. I mean, it stands alone in terms of kind of its novelty. And so perhaps that holds people. But I, I don't know. I wish that that was data that were made of, available publicly. I'd be interested in it. Oh, they would never release that. That would be foolish. No, to. absolutely not. That would hurt their shares. <laughs> so I guess moving away from sort of the fact that it's, you know, confusing and, and maybe not a mainstream style film. I did enjoy it, and I think there's a lot of things um, to like about it. I think one thing that, that I really liked about it were the performances. I love Jesse Buckley, loved Wild Rose last year, um, thought she was great in that. I think she's really magnetic in this. I think to me, and again, I'm getting a little bit ahead of it, it's, it's an Oscar podcast, I just think in Oscars. I, to me, this feels like maybe the most likely snub, if, if I can put it like that. I, I don't know that I think that this movie is going to get really anything when it comes to the Oscars. I think it may just be too out there. Well, she, she's she's very good in the movie, but the movie undermines her. Oh, sure, it does. I mean, to, to the point, I mean, again, without giving away the game, I mean, it, it inherently undermines her. But as a performance, I found her to be just incredibly compelling and, and sort of holds the screen and holds the attention um, whenever she's on there. No, I, I, I was, you know, I thought she was terrific. Um, and she had a look to her that she. I kept looking at her and thinking of of how easy it was to 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 imagine her age. And I thought, oh, she looks just like Amy Irving in Crossing Delancey. Hmm. I think like, like the the glowing eyes and and the kind of age in the face, but like while still looking like late twenties. Amy Irving wasn't in. I think she was in her late thirties during uh, Crossing Delancey, but it, she looks very similar. And and it, it's very easy to to picture someone like aging well. And, and like seeing the wisdom in their face. And that's what I kept noticing um, uh, throughout throughout the film, um, even though, you know, at the at a certain point, they, they uh, deliberately age her ahead, but it's kind of, it's supposed to look bad. So I actually found that more distracting. I, was, I, I thought, well, you could make this more subtle and she would look, you know, it, it would work for me. But yeah, no, I thought, I think that the movie is a, a 
sort of deliberately undermines her in a way that will probably um, uh, negate any chance for any awards attention because yeah, without it's very hard to discuss that without spoiling why, honestly. Um, yeah, but as I said, the movie um, kind of takes uh, any chance away from her by its own design. Yeah, and I think anybody who's seen it will kind of inherently understand what, what you mean by that. What else worked for you? Kind of what were the things about this movie that, that you that stuck with you in a positive way well uh you know there's a i I laughed uh only uh for in a way that most people probably won't when we see in the guy's bedroom that there's a big pauline kale book and i i was watching with my girlfriend and i pointed i'm like oh i have that same book over there and then it came back where she starts doing a pauline kale impression (laughs) but that's such a specific thing that i would be amused by uh, that I realize is not uh, that everyone is not going to take to it. You can watch the uh, Pauline Kael documentary. I think that's out now. Um, I think it's called What She Said. If you want to hear how how the impression is actually not bad, um, especially for someone I understand is I think she's British. It's it's a pretty good impression. Um, but yeah, there's what I did like about it. You know, it has the the, the dread that builds, and um, you know, David Thewlis is amusing and. It has promise, but I mean, I guess it, it, I kept thinking, did you did you see Mother, the uh, Aronofsky movie? Yes. So it had that similar thing where it kept taking itself so seriously. And but that that as it got more and more absurd, it just became kind of campy to me. But a lot of Aronofsky does that for me, where like it goes over the top so much that like I cannot take it seriously and it just becomes camp. I kind of had the same reaction to Black Swan and this didn't quite get to that point because it is self-aware so campy doesn't really matter but that they that the parent the parent characters are cartoons and you know we don't kind of get a fix on them again like that the ending so undermines everything that it's it's uh, very difficult to at the end of the film go right okay so i was supposed to understand this or this means this when when honestly either the book ending or the film ending the book ending is kind of pat, and then the the film ending is like a way so it doesn't have to have that same pat ending. Mm-hmm. But it <laughs> it has the same problem. But basically, adaptation um, uh, has this fake screenplay that's written called the Three. That's written by Donald Kaufman, who's not a real person, but it's bit you know. And it's what's funny about it. It's but like he was nominated for an Oscar. <laughs> he, he wasn't. He's a fictional person nominated for an Oscar, which is the second time that happened. Um, which would be the first would be the uh, Robert Town screenplay for Greystoke, where where he just took his name off and his dog was nominated. Huh. Um, P. H. Vozick. In in adaptation, there's this ridiculous screenplay that he's written, this cop, you know, serial killer thriller, in which everybody is all the same person, and it's called the Three, and they make fun of that whole idea, and uh, in adaptation they make fun of it and what's funny is the same studio six months later uh also a movie starring john cusack who has a small role in adaptation put out a movie called identity uh with john cusack ray liotta and amanda pete and the resolution of that movie is that it we learned that all the characters who've been stuck in a dark and stormy night who are being picked off one by one in a sort of ten indian scenario uh, are all actually just characters in uh this serial killer who's on trial all in his head and then the movie foolishly goes on for another 10 minutes trying to resolve characters that we know are fictional, uh, as if we would care, because they're all, they're all just people in some guy's head. And this movie, uh, the new Charlie Kaufman movie, doesn't do that, but 
it might as well be an adaptation of the three for uh, for the ways in which it undermines itself. Um, he made fun of it in an adaptation, and he, I, I think he found tried to find a way around it in in the adaptation of this book, but uh, did did not manage it. And I don't know if there's a there's a, there's a sneakier way to do it, and so he didn't. I don't know. I went really through like a evolution on this movie that, or it wasn't even an evolution; it was like a roller coaster because like the movie ended and I didn't get it. Like I. I think I was just sort of self-conscious that I just made my wife sit through it and thinking she probably hated it. Um, She actually didn't. But then, you know, but I also just didn't understand it. Then I started to kind of read about it. I watched, you know, there's some some good, really good breakdown videos on the Internet. Yeah, but that's see that. See, then you're having the the Internet do the work for you. I, I I was unable to do the work for myself. Let me put it like that. I, I, I the movie. The movie hasn't met you halfway. And the movie should meet you halfway, at least a little bit. Oh, sure. Yeah. No, no, I, I, I don't disagree. I will say that in 2020, consuming content has sort of become a 360-degree experience, not necessarily saying that's a good thing. I mean, like, for example, to fully understand the rise of Skywalker, which I hated, mm-hmm. you had to read a bunch of books, watch a TV show catch a speech that only took place in Fortnite at a specific time. Like, it just seems to be like where the world is trending, right? And so I think there is a, a subset of people who actually like watching something and then immediately going to YouTube and seeing new rock stars and, and getting all the different takes and, and slowly it builds together. That is sort of how this movie works, I think. And so my first kind of step in doing that, I was like, oh, wow, okay, this actually is, maybe this is a masterstroke. Maybe this is so meta and brilliant that, you know, he's kind of told this whole story without, you know, even having to, without telling the story. He's kind of found this alternate way to tell the whole story. But then my my final evolution on it was kind of like, well, when you strip it all away, what is this story really? Like, other than the fact that it's told in a creative way, it's not all that complicated, and I don't know if it's all that worthy of of being told. So I, I think that's sort of where I landed on it. Was that I don't I don't know if there is meat on the bones. I think it's just sort of a fancy outside of a house that's that's empty on the inside. I mean, I I, I don't disagree that it, it essentially feels empty. And when I watch one of his films, I, I I think of so there's something in adaptation where where Nick Cage starts uh, rambling. Uh, a little bit as he's at a he's at a, a class that Robert McKee, the screenwriting guru, is teaching, and he's he's being you know he's he's rambling in his voiceover, and Robert McKee, as played by Brian Cox, says, "And God help you if you write voiceover, if you use voiceover, <laughs> you know," and it's one of the funniest things in the whole movie. And there's no more voiceover for the rest of the movie because he's conscious of just what a cheat it is, and yet he's doing the sort of novelistic cheats throughout this with having like internal monologues and all this other stuff. And all the all these different ways, and I'm like, if this is all going to be internal, this is really maybe not an adaptable book, in a way, and there is no way to visually get this across. And the movie is so sort of the opposite of visual in a, in a lot of ways, um, by keeping it mostly constrained to these sort of rambling, uh, nowhere conversations in a uh, in a car. And I say this as someone who's a big fan of Richard Linklater's uh, Before series. Before Midnight is one of my favorite films which is just two people having a conversation for two hours. And I love what happened was with Tom Noonan, uh, who's a, you know, a staple of Kaufman's work. Um, but yeah, I, I, uh, I, I think by hedging your bet, by, by making it both meta 
and serious and then backing off. I think the ending almost cancels itself out to to a further degree by becoming even more meta. It's in its own way a cop-out. I mean, uh, Kaufman um, kind of goes between being serious and being dirty. Like, he'll, you know, in a lot of his films, there'll be just some scene where someone is cursing just, like, for the sake of doing it, just to be filthy. Um, it happens in Being John Malkovich. It happens in Adaptation. It happens in Adoche. There's, you know, just uh, often just grossness for the sake of grossness. And I always wonder, like, if that's kind of like the childish, you know, uh, his thought of like, how do I, how do I get across just some nasty, gross joke to step away from when I'm, when I'm making some, uh, uh, patting myself on the back kind of literary reference that nobody's going to get that I'm, that I'm very self-congratulatory about. Um, hence the, you know, the Pauline Kale thing, which I was amused by, but I'm not exactly sure who it's for other than somebody like me. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Uh, who might be familiar with their work and might actually go, oh, I remember that review of A Woman Under the Influence uh, that she is. And I know that you know people who haven't seen the movie hear me saying, well, what are you talking about, Woman Under the Influence? There's literally a scene where somebody just states a verbatim review of Paul McHale's Woman Under the... John Cassavetti's you know, Woman Under the Influence. Um, does it have anything to do with anything? I mean, not particularly, um, but yeah. Um, you know, the, his movies as I said before, when, when he writes them, they're, they're a little bit more playful. And maybe when he's directing them, they're, they're just like punishment in a way, like Anomalisa. I didn't necessarily have a good time while I was watching it. I was impressed with the visual style, but it's like he was working against the visual by making it the opposite of dynamic. There's a moment in Anomalisa where, uh, these people are about to take, this guy's about to take off his own face. And then he just throws it away and goes back. And like all the absurdity doesn't, you know, doesn't build and doesn't go anywhere. And I always wonder, like, if that's, like, if he's got several different thoughts at once, like, I want to fulfill this, I want to adapt this part of a novel, and I want to have this literary device, and I want to do this meta thing, and I want to have, you know, this gross joke, and I want to, you know, uh, confuse the audience for about 25 minutes before the surrealism kicks in, and I'm, I'm going to, however I get there is however I get there. They all kind of follow that same pattern. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I mean, I, and I think, I mean, he's obviously such a, a transcendent talent he's he's arguably one of the best screenwriters of this last 20 years and i i do prefer the movies that are directed by other people i think spike jones has been the best partner for him i i do think that when it's just him it does tend to go darker and and doesn't always work quite as well for me but it's still worth a watch i still think i for all the kind of you know conversation we've had maybe you would think it's you know we don't like it i I'm only speaking for myself. I, I still recommend the people who are interested in movies watch the movie. I think it's creative and it's different, and there's there's stuff to enjoy in it. But I but ultimately, I, I don't think it's one of my favorites uh, of his. I'll say that you know what you'll have a bad time, but you should watch it. There you go. That's it's that's a sell. That's a sell if I if I if I've ever heard one. Um, well, Adam, I appreciate the time to come on and and talk it through, and we avoided spoiling it. And uh, one more time, anybody who wants to check out Wait, Wait, Don't Kill Me, where, where, where and when do they, should they do that? So go on the Colonial Theater's website and uh, look up Wait, Wait, Don't Kill Me under virtual screenings. Um, and it'll be there at least until the 19th of September. Uh, after that, um, whether it goes to other theaters or not, you can always find out where it's uh, going to be playing on waitwaitdon'tkillme.com. Love it. Adam, thanks again. Sure. Thanks very much, James.